Last week on Ghost Hampton, on a rare visit to his old office, Lyle met his former colleagues, ball-busting Fraser and Josie, an old flame. He stuns them by demanding to pay off his ex's Florida house and purchase Old Vic. At court, Lyle faces a hateful reporter who's out to make him look foolish. Lyle's jaw drops. He searches Monsignor Hannon's face and picks up a dark depression in the old man. Really? This young priest was once possessed. Possession is a kind of supernatural experience. Hannon nods gravely. Oh my God. Sorry, Monsignor, that's, that's a bad thing to say. It is, but everybody says it these days. What became of him? His father disowned him, blaming him for his mother's death placed him in the island's monastery, and Matteo grew up into the priesthood. He spent this summer and last here in our exchange program, working with the parish's underprivileged parish children. They love him. Lyle wonders to himself how Southampton has any underprivileged people. Must be laborers' kids. Sounds like a decent outcome. Why do people think it was demonic possession? The location, for one thing. An ancient cave he'd been exploring with his friends. I'm probably saying too much. It's all hearsay. Apparently there was also a witch in attendance. Lyle's eyebrows rise. Then Hannon looks up as a shaft of sunlight pierces his shady mahogany office. Lyle turns toward the light and is partially blinded, making out only a tall figure in a long black cassock. Ah, Father Sherry, glad you could stop in. I have someone here I'd like you to meet. Having introduced the two men, Hannon soon urged them to head out to the local coffee shop to talk. Now Lyle and Matteo sit behind Fred in an awkward silence that Lyle finally breaks. Well, the Monsignor gave us the old bums rush. You are not that old, Mr. Hall. Right. That's a figure of speech in America. Oh, and call me Lyle, would you, Father? Lyle is fine. Fine. You have many figures of speech in America, Lyle. They are quite curious, but charming. We'll try to avoid the prurient ones. Lyle notes Sherry's exhaled extra syllable after some words, like his name. Definitely a foreign man. The question is, how weird is he? Fred pulls up at the Blue Duck on Main Street in Southampton. Management here knows Lyle, and they don't disdain him, as they do in Bridgehampton. His daughter is, after all, a local Southampton police detective. Both men exit the van, Lyle opts for his cane and self-propulsion for the short walk into the coffee shop. Seated, both men are eye to eye. Matteo Sherry, young and handsome in his austere black cassock with endless buttons, sports a black crew cut. He gazes into Lyle with dark, penetrating eyes. You have survived many trials. And won most of them. Yes. 
Monsignor spoke of your profession. But just now, I thought of a trial like a near-death experience. Lyle tightens up and feels a sudden chill all over. You know about that? Monsignor did say we had things in common. And I saw you've had a serious injury. Also, if one has a near-death experience, one may see it in others. Takes one to know one, huh? Matteo makes a questioning expression. A figure of speech, Father. Do you speak about your injury? Yeah. Bad car crashed in Bridgehampton a year ago. A nice old lady died. I almost died. It was traumatic, no? Were you blamed for the lady's death? Sure was. And her family suing. As if it were all my fault. Yours is a litigious society. That's how I made my living. So, I have a spinal injury. Pinched a nerve. Doing tons of therapy. Now I'll be getting stem cell therapy, too. To stimulate regrowth of spinal cells. Embryonic stem cells? The best they are. I'm a candidate for a clinical trial. Yet another trial. People with money believe they can harvest cells from aborted babies to promote their own health. It's a terrible sin. I wish you'd reconsider that, Mr. Hall. Who is more defenseless than an unborn baby. Taking that as rhetorical, Lyle does not respond. He sips his coffee. Matteo has ordered a devil's food cupcake with his coffee. Good coffee, huh? Almost as good as home. You a devil's food cake fan? It is very rich. And as you say, chocolatey. I also enjoy Angel's food cake. Lyle nods as Matteo forks into his cupcake. The two seem to have reached a detente. The Monsignor says we both had some contact with the supernatural. Swallowing, Matteo's demeanor signals that he's again turned cold, given the subject. I've heard a young girl's voice coming from a very old house in Bridgehampton. Ayutachi. Matteo says this with Italian inflection, accent on the second syllable. Sadly... A common phrase from spirits of the dead. Do you believe in ghosts? I mean, are you allowed to? I believe in all things seen and unseen. But ghosts, not necessarily. Well, it's not like I have a choice. I saw something when the girl contacted me. Matteo's interest level rises. I saw my wife's tombstone from the local cemetery. Except added to it is my daughter's name. It says she dies in four days. Matteo puts down his fork. Your daughter is... Georgie's 30, a police detective here in Southampton. Is her job uh, dangerous? Not yet. She's new. They have her surveilling some dirtbag they think is running drugs. Mateo screws up his face in confusion. A man selling illegal drugs. I see. Show me this house. Lyle pulls out his smartphone and opens a photo of old Vic looking extremely decrepit. No, 
No, I mean, take me to this house. Lal uses twenties to commune with service providers, Fred above all. There's one in his shirt pocket now as he pulls up in front of Old Vic. Lyle spent the ride to Bridgehampton providing the strange priest with further details about his encounter with Jewel and the terrifying tombstone. He even got worked up enough to mention the renewed sensations in his legs. This detail raised Matteo's eyebrows. The sun sets early in October, Halloween approaching, and it's cast Old Vic in an eerie burnt orange glow. The big house has been abandoned and subjected to generations of projectiles and spray paint. The local homeowners association has fought graffiti artists by slapping their work with fresh gray paint, but there's always new artwork. Now the town of Southampton has Old Vic boarded up tight, not just signs and police tape. The two passengers exit the van, Lyle on two crutches now for balance and mobility, and he and Matteo Sherry gaze at the foreboding front facade. It's in worse shape than your photo suggested. I will look around back. Lyle is still staring at the sinister-looking Victorian when Matteo, an agile soccer player, crosses the yard through weeds and trash and disappears behind the house. Lyle Hall pays no attention. He's enraptured by the old wreck and what happened to him when he first met Jewel here. He wants her to return, but his attempts at picking up any supernatural emanations seem blocked by something else. It floods his senses. The one clear sensation Lyle picks up is disturbing. Whatever's inside this house wants him. Badly. Something much older than the sad Victorian girl. It makes Lyle want to just go home. There's a sudden crash. Lyle! Lyle, come here! Lyle hobbles across the front yard through rusty beer cans, bottles, a bent bicycle wheel. He doesn't notice a plain gray sedan pull up and park across the street. Making the turn into the backyard, Lyle sees that Matteo has unhinged the old kitchen door and laid it across the entry like a ramp. Father Sherry! What? This is legal entry! But he now sees a different Matteo Sherry, not the devout Maltese priest visiting Southampton in some kind of clerical exchange program. This Matteo is focused on a mission. He wants something, and it's inside this old house. I am soon to make my flight to Rome. Do your local authorities extradite people for trespass? Lyle is too stunned to respond. Give me your phone. Please. Lyle dumbly hands over his smartphone. Matteo fiddles with it and its flashlight goes on. Your problems are somehow rooted in this old house, are they not? Lyle looks up the makeshift ramp as Matteo shines the light into the kitchen. Even from outside, veils of hanging cobwebs are visible. Lyle spots a large spider cringing its many legs in one corner of webbing. It's time to shine a light on whatever is in here before the authorities tear it down. Or else we may never know. Matteo takes one of Lyle's crutches and crooks his arm, which is quite strong, and Lyle's free arm leading him forward. The two make their way up the makeshift ramp. 
Inside, it's dark. The kitchen, the whole structure, seems held together by cobwebs and dust. Mateo swings the phone light around to get their bearings. Nearby is a rusted, turn-of-the-century refrigerator, its square white door detached. Inside it, the phone light illumines a big turd. There are countertops covered with rat footprints and trash conjoined with spider webbing. Then the light shines on something truly shocking, especially since Lyle is an arachnophobe. Deep in the corner of the kitchen sits the largest, fattest spider he's ever seen, crouched in a web stretching across the room at shoulder height. Following a summer of feeding, its ass seems the size of a softball. Unafraid here in its domain, the spider pulls back, but only a little. Its extensive web vibrates from wall to wall. It also cradles large egg sacs wrapped in spidery cotton. The creature settles in and watches. Lyle starts coughing in the dusty air. I can't. Can't be anywhere near that thing. Mateo helps Lyle bend and, bearing a crutch, they shuffle under the web toward the parlor. Mateo waves Lyle's crutch in front of them, rupturing the web and pissing off the big mama's spider. Lyle inhales a fat string of webbing in his mouth and gags, trying to spit it out. As they stumble out of the kitchen, he spots the spider nimbly reworking the web, and surely planning retaliation. The 19th century parlor is spacious, its ceiling two stories high, its many tall windows boarded up from outside. Only a few fading rays of light make it through a crack here and there. The dusty floorboards are scattered with beer cans and cheap wine bottles. The large hearth, what Lyle calls a walk-in fireplace, is strewn with garbage and the ashes of original moldings. Its slate mantle is supported by stone gargoyles. Mateo shines the phone up the wooden staircase and stares. Its banister has been dismantled as firewood, leaving the stairway unprotected. Lyle takes back his phone, checks its battery. This place is unclean. <coughs> Filthy. The devil's workshop. Lyle, I need to borrow your phone. No, you don't. I do. Only for the light. You cannot go up this staircase, but I must. I will investigate. I will be quick. This is the only time we will have. Mateo squeezes Lyle's hand. Trust me, I will be quick. Lyle mistrusts people who say, trust me, but gives up his phone once more, immediately sensing his mistake. Mateo moves to the stairs and negotiates the rickety old steps, kicking trash off on his way out. The staircase leads to the third floor, his real destination. The phone's light jiggles as he goes, and Lyle watches from the parlor as darkness envelops him. So does the cold chill of something dark gripping his ribs. Matteo experiences vertigo the higher he climbs. No banister, fingernails digging at the crumbling plaster wall. He must not look down, so he does not communicate with Lyle, which may be good in a way, because Lyle is now in trouble. A wind is kicking up outside, making the porous building start to heave, inhaling and exhaling its dust. Cold and yet sweating, Lyle squeezes his crutch handles, trying to maintain a grip on reality. But it's too late. He knows it. 
Baby spiders are hatching under his skin. One crutch clatters to the floor as he frees an arm to do some heavy scratching. His sane mind says there are no baby spiders. But what else could they be? They spread quickly, up his neck and under his face. His scalp, too. They seem to catch fire under his skin, like fire ants. Lyle can't scratch enough. Desperate, he switches the crutch to his other arm and scratches his neck and face furiously. He's drawing blood. Sherry! Father Sherry! Where are you? I need you down here! Now the spider hatchlings become the very tingles that tease Lyle's numb legs. Aggressively this time, they swiftly make their way up and down his quads and hamstrings, then morph into excruciating burning cramps. Lyle hears a derisive guttural snicker rise through the floor. He tries to massage his legs while balancing on one crutch. Jewel! Are you here? Jewel, help me. I'm trying to help you. The snickering voice grows louder. It wants to drag him down. First, an image of Jewel appears to Lyle. She catches on fire as the derisive, hateful voice rises. The last thing Lyle sees are Jewel's sad eyes as her image crumples to ash and disintegrates. Lyle's remaining crutch clatters to the floor and he hits the bed, striking his head hard on the dirty floorboards. The laughter ceases. Losing consciousness, Lyle screams out one last time for Sherry, who cannot hear him. Matteo Sherry sets foot on the highly unstable third floor. It's the floor of the mansard roof. He shines the phone light down a hall of doorways to former bedrooms. The floorboards shift under his feet as he is drawn to one room at the very end. At the midpoint of the hall, a short stairway leads up to the roof and the broken-down cupola. Cold October air wafts down. Now Matteo hears what Lyle heard outside the house. Women crying. He reaches the last door and turns the sticky knob. The door creaks inward as if under its own power. Inside, the cries he'd heard become outright wails of misery. Matteo is drawn into the room and the door slams shut behind him. He's startled, his heart races, but he's not really afraid. This is why he's come. Shining the phone light around the shabby room, he sees the source of the wails. Large, toothless mouths, maybe 12 of them shrouded in long, dirty hanks of black and gray hair. No eyes, just hair and mouths. They hover close to the floor, but crawl toward him from all sides on skeletal elbows. Matteo understands what is happening and pockets the smartphone. Quietly at first, then louder, he begins a Catholic prayer, the Hail Mary, the most popular among the faithful. Hail Mary. Full of grace. Now in the dark, the priest feels a serpentine coil constrict his ankles and rise up his calves, tighter with each prayerful phrase he utters. Blessed art thou. He feels a snake's head slither up inside one pants leg, its tongue searching up his thigh. In mid-prayer, Matteo cannot rid himself of the thing, imaginary or not. He hears a taunting voice, dripping with evil. <laughs> Matteo understands these hateful Greek words are meant to disable him. 
He then absorbs a sudden powerful blow to his ribs. An unseen force knocks him back against the door as the snake tightens around his leg. Its fangs dig deep into his thigh, causing excruciating pain. But he must not stop reciting his simple prayer. More body blows follow, increasing in violence with each phrase of the prayer he utters. And blessed is the fruit. The women's voices cry out piteously. Something badly wants to bring him down. He struggles to maintain his balance as the voice repeats its hellish message, this time in English. We know you killed your mother. 